Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to be looking, returning now for the next several weeks at this, uh, this section, 12, 13, and 14. They really form a complete unit. We're, we're embarking on a new topic within this important letter from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. Chapters 8 to 10 which we've been looking at for the last several months, we're primarily concerned with the believer's freedom in Christ and our conduct in and uh, around the unbelieving world where we live. And that was all set in the context of, of their situation as Paul speaks to this issue of sharing food connected with idol worship, which was what they were dealing with. And we learned an important principle in studying through those chapters, and that is that love not simply knowledge, not that knowledge is not important, but knowledge alone is not enough. Love must ground all Christian conduct. And he proves his case ethically in chapter 8. He proves it uh, personally in chapter 9. And he proves it then theologically throughout chapter 10. So, so we learned about that. And begin, as we come into chapter 11, 12, all the way through chapter 14, Paul continues to answer various questions that they have written to him about, and they've asked him uh, on these different issues. And you see these headings all throughout where he says, now concerning this and now concerning that. These are the questions that they had given to him, and now he is responding back with his apostolic counsel. And the questions reveal that their corporate gathering, which is really what all of these questions center around, was shot through with a lot of debate and even dysfunction. Um, there was debate and dysfunction around the God-given roles of men and women. We saw that in the beginning part of chapter 11. There was debate and dysfunction at the Lord's table, and we saw that in detail in verses 17 to 34 of 11. And as we get into chapter 12, 13, and 14, we're going to see there was much debate and dysfunction around spiritual gifts and how they think about those things and, and live them out. And I think it bears repeating We've said this several times, but I think it's worth saying again, that even though this church, chapter 1 says, was enriched in Christ Jesus in all speech and all knowledge, and they were not lacking in any gift and eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, nevertheless, they required the healing and the strengthening balm of apostolic correction and counsel to be applied to their souls in order to grow up into maturity. The specifics of who told Paul what aren't really clear, although there's certainly speculation about who passed certain information ahead to him, because he's not there as he writes this. But what we do know is that Paul's instruction back to them is exactly what they needed and what the church, all of the church need to know what is necessary to do things and maintain decency and order in every dimension of corporate worship. If it was necessary for them to know these things, it is critical and necessary for us to know these things. And we should be humble to receive them as Paul's counsel and correction is given to put it into practice by the grace of God. I think we make a huge, huge mistake if we say, oh, we'd, we'd never drive into the same spiritual potholes that they did. Uh, that is foolish. We fail to understand the frailty of our own hearts if we say something like that, and we are setting ourselves up for a major fall. As Proverbs says in chapter 16, verse 28, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit 
before stumbling. So we need to be humble to recognize that just because they have a reputation for being uh, not the most discerning and mature church, that we are just as vulnerable to the same things as they are. So with that in mind, let's go to the text, and we're looking at verses 1 to 11 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. I just want to read it by way of introduction. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, and there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So after setting forth, we look at these verses, after setting forth the basic criterion for distinguishing between what belongs to the Spirit here and what doesn't, he does that in verses 1 to 3, Paul then brings to the foreground from the, in the rest of the chapter, we just read the first 11 verses, he brings to the foreground the need for a diversity of giftings in the unity of the one Spirit. And we'll see that all through the end of chapter 12, even up to verse 31. But what I want us to look at this morning is this foundational matter in verses 1, 2, and 3 of what does and doesn't mark out a truly spiritual person. And I want to break the text down, it's three verses, into three parts. We're going to see the apostles' concern in verse 1. We'll see the unbeliever's confusion in verse 2. And then we'll see the true Christian's confession in verse 3. And so we begin this morning where Paul begins in verse 1 with the apostles' concern. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. T.S. Eliot is a famous poet and writer, and he said, when we do not know or when we do not know enough, we tend always to substitute emotions for thoughts. And I thought that was a fitting quote. And that, in a sentence, captures the issue with the Corinthian church and really with the larger evangelical landscape in which we find ourselves today. Just as the various cults and mystery religions of the first century encouraged their worshipers that ecstatic speech and unrestrained behavior and generally being kind of beside oneself are the surest evidences of the divine spirit within them, so even the modern charismatic movement encourages the young and the less discerning Christian that speaking in languages or gibberish, having dreams and visions, and engaging in power encounters with demonic forces are the surest evidence of the Holy Spirit within, within them. To many in Corinth, just as to many present-day believers today, experiences and emotions are the bright and textured markings of a spiritual man or a spiritual woman, 
And in contrast, the disciplines of biblical obedience, uh, taking in God's word, prayer, corporate worship, fellowship, and the virtues that flow out of that, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, those things are viewed as kind of washed out and flat. In a sentence, because they don't know or they don't know enough, they substitute emotions for thoughts. Thoughts, true, right, and profound thoughts about the living God who has revealed himself to us through his word. And that is a dangerous place to find oneself. It's not a good place to be. You look across the, the scriptures. God said to the prophet Hosea in Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, God says, I will reject you, speaking of Israel, from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I will forget your children. God makes clear there, and he does the same thing in Isaiah, that Israel, to Israel, that there is a real-world consequence for continuing to walk in ignorance, willful ignorance of the word of God. Even modern jurisprudence, the it makes clear that ignorance of the law is not an excuse. Right? If, if you speed and you get pulled over and you say, officer, I didn't know that the speed limit was 25, he's going to say, so what? Right? It doesn't matter. And where did that principle come from? Well, it comes out of the scriptures, actually. Leviticus 5, verse 17, Now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty, and he shall bear his punishment. So we must know. And that is, the apostle, that is the Apostle Paul's concern here as he be, leads into these chapters. There is a lack of understanding in their midst. And there's a knowledge gap in this church, and that needed to be backfilled with apostolic counsel unless they reap the consequences of their ignorance. He does not want them to be unaware. And whether that was intentional or not, it's hard to say. It, most certainly, there were some in their midst who should have known better. Others, though, might simply have been young in the faith and hadn't yet been instructed in the way of God more accurately. So that's entirely possible. But whatever the case, there was some serious confusion in their midst about what it means to be a mature, spirit-filled people. For the Corinthians, to be spiritual was, like so many things, evidenced by what glorified them individually. Remember back in chapters 1, 2, and 3, they, they were glorying in power. They were glorying in their wisdom and all these things. And, and Paul says, our, our glory is in the cross, uh, in the humiliation of the cross. Those things don't glorify us individually. They glorify Christ. And that is his point even here in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Paul's going to show us that what's spiritual is what glorifies Christ and ultimately builds up his, his body. Now, overall, chapters 12 to 14 have more of a correction feel to them in nature than, uh, even though there is very much instruction happening and information being passed along in these chapters. And so even if they wrote to Paul and asked him a question or questions, which is very likely given the way he kind of shifts gears in verse 1 here, um, he, he, he writes back to them on that which pertains to the Spirit. That's really the best way to understand verse 1. He says, now concerning that which pertains to the Spirit. We insert the word gifts 
because that's kind of bound up in that. But I think it's more than that. And um, his response here takes exception to what was going on and what they believed and how, how they felt about these things. He is not simply informing them in areas where they lacked understanding. He is trying to show them that the way they were thinking about and approaching that which pertains to the Spirit was wrong. It was wrong-headed, and it was, it was uh, leading them astray. And you can kind of see this as you get into chapter 14. If you look at chapter 14, verse 6, you, you hear how he's, he's confronting what's already going on. He says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues or languages, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of the knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? If you look down at verse 18, as I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Or verse 23, he says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Or again in verse 36 and following, he says, um, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And so what you see here is Paul confronting their practice, their working out of the spiritual gifts. And we'll get into all the specifics of what those gifts were and what their function is and, and those things in the subsequent verses. But he is taking issue with what was going on in their midst. And the specific problem that he addresses here very likely is the abuse of the gift of tongues or the gift of languages. It's significant that, the, that only tongues are mentioned in every list of spiritual gifts in these three chapters. You see it in chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 12, as he lists them out. You see it again at the beginning of chapter 13, and again in chapter 14, verse 6, as he kind of gets into all the, the details here about gifts. All of this helps us as the reader, as the interpreter, to, to identify the abuse of languages, the abuse of this gift of languages as the point of departure from God's design. But it was symptomatic of a bigger issue of how they viewed the spiritual gifts. He begins in chapter 12, which is where we begin, with a general word on spiritual gifts. And that is followed up by a theological kind of interlude in chapter 13 on the priority of love. And then he makes the application in chapter 14 with the very specific response of the issue at hand. So just kind of giving you a framework to understand how these chapters are, are laid out. The thrust of Paul's correction and instruction is zeroed in on their abuse of the gift of tongues in the corporate gathering. And that was happening in a way that was far afield from what God expected or wanted to be happening. And he insists at the end that all things must be done properly or decently and in order. But you can't expect God's people to rightly understand the spiritual gift of tongues unless they understand the overall nature of spiritual gifts and their function and purpose in the church. And that's where he sets sail here in chapter 12. And if I may, may make a single point of application here, looking at verse 1, it is not wrong to be a baby Christian. 
I just want to affirm that. It's not wrong to be a baby Christian. It's not a failure or a sin on your part to be young in the faith or immature in our understanding of God's truth, right? You have to crawl before you can walk, and you have to uh, walk before you can run. You have to drink milk before you can have and eat meat, digest meat. The problem arises when we're content to stay there. That's the issue. The normal progression of the Christian life is one of growing up into maturity. We've said this many times before. Living things grow. Living things grow. And for the one who's been born again, that means we should be moving from where we are in Christ to where we need to be in Christ and helping others do the same. This is illustrated for us beautifully by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 and verse 11. And and he writes here, he says, concerning uh, him, we have much to say and it's hard to explain. He says, but you have become dull of hearing. They had become indifferent to the word of God. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the, the elementary principles, the ABCs of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Some in their midst were still nursing on the milk. And Paul says, or, well, it's Paul. Paul probably wrote Hebrews. He's saying this is, this, these things should not be. That you shouldn't still be there. And some in their midst were nursing on this milk, and he exhorts them in the beginning of chapter 6, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He says, we, we need to move on from these ABCs, the basics. And then he says later on in chapter um, 11, in verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's saying you have to keep running to win. That's what he's saying in these passages. And we need to run diligently, verse 11 says. We need to run hard all the way through the finish line. We can't let up. Christ isn't something that you and I add to our lives like an accessory. He's not an accessory. He is our life. He is our life. In him we live and move and have our being. All things are from him, Romans 11.36 says, are from him and through him and to him. So, And so let's never be content to be sluggish or stagnant, as the writer of Hebrews warns against, in our Christian lives. Just just purpose now. Don't do that. Let's never be content to be unaware. Can we just commit to that? If you're reading God's word and and, and you don't understand something, don't just be like, and just move on. Stop and, and search out the understanding. And, and many of you do that. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But, but, but do that. Search it out. This is, an, this is maybe an introductory uh, encouragement. Be a part of Equipping Hour. 
Be, that is what we're doing. We are searching out the scriptures in a systematic way. It is, it is equipping you with sound doctrine for sound living. So be a part of equipping hour. Talk to one another about God's word. What a wonderful way to encourage each other about the things of Christ. We always learn something in those contexts. Ask someone who looks like they know what they're talking about a question that you have. And we did that already this morning. We got some really hard-hitting questions. Uh, I mean, I know you guys are thinking, because you want to know, like, why is this here? And why is that not this? And you, you want to understand those things. And we need to have that, app, that desire, that motivation. And that is, I think, just a practical implication of verse 1. They were unaware. And, and that is confronting us, because we can be that way too. And we need to, we need to chase after those things. Let's never be content to stay where we are to be stagnant, but to constantly be running to win. Well, anyway, the apostles' concern gives way in verse 1. Secondly, to the unbelievers' confusion in verse 2. The unbelievers' confusion in verse 2. Paul begins his counsel and his correction by reminding them of their unbelieving past. Well, who they were before Christ. And And that unbelieving past was marked out by spiritual blindness and ignorance about the true and living God and his ways. Look at verse 2. He says, you know, you know, and I know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Now, usually in the New Testament, this term pagans means simply those who are not Jewish, but it can also refer to those who are not Christian, which is how he's using the term here. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 5, Paul uses a similar term and he exhorts us to pursue sanctification, to forsake lustful passions like the Gentiles, same term that he uses here, who do not know God. Though in some contexts, pagans may be understood as those who don't believe in God, it's probably better to understand pagans, this term pagan, in terms of belief in other gods or false gods. And so, for example, in Ephesians 4 and verse 17, Paul says not to walk any longer as the Gentiles also walk. But that term Gentiles could just as easily be rendered not to walk any longer like those who believe in idols or who believe in gods who are not really God. It's the same idea. And this this verb, these verbs, really, there's multiple verbs here, led astray or however you were led, picture someone being led away as a prisoner, one sentence and under judgment. And that's the picture. Yeah, uh, Mark uses a similar term in his gospel in Mark 14 and verse 44, speaking of our Lord. Uh, and he says, now he who was betraying him, Judas, had given them, this cohort of, of soldiers, them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Same term. Or Mark 15 and verse 16 says, The soldiers took Jesus away into the palace that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole cohort. The picture is one of a prisoner under judgment being led around. There's a humiliating dimension to false worship. There is a humiliating dimension to false worship, and those caught up in it don't know any better. They can do no different. Everywhere they turned, they always ended up in the same place, worshiping an idol that was no God at all. And that's what he says here. However you were led, it's, it's kind of open-ended. Whatever that looked like for you, wherever that took you, this was their background. This is who they were before Christ. And really, if we're honest, it's every unbeliever's place 
before Christ. We are them in this passage. Every one of us are born into this world sinful, hopeless, and helpless. Listen to how the New Testament describes every one of us before we put our faith in Christ. And this is just a cross-section of references. There are so many more we could add to it. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore, remember you, formerly, the Gentiles, those who did not believe in the true God or worshipped other gods in the flesh, were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. And then he adds this... this, uh, participial phrase at the end, having no hope and without God in the world. That's all of us. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says of the Thessalonians, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, the Thessalonians, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Or as we saw earlier in chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul says, such were some of you. And That's referring to what he says in the preceding verse. We were idolaters and adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers, and the list goes on. This is who we were before we were washed, before we were sanctified, before we were justified by the grace of Christ. We all come into this world suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, Romans says. And though we clearly understood his eternal power and divine nature, and we are without excuse. Paul says, nevertheless, we did not honor God or give thanks as we should. And instead, he says, we became futile in our speculations, and our foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, we became fools, and we exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for some lesser image in the form of corruptible man. This This is what Paul's reminding them of here in verse 2. He says, you know, you know when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. It's no surprise then, with that degree of spiritual blindness as a starting point, that they would be slow to recognize the marks of a truly spiritual man or woman. Stepping out of that depth of darkness, their eyes had not adjusted to the realities of the glories of Christ. Not to be, they were not able to discern completely and accurately truth from error, real and counterfeit manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They just weren't mature enough. And that can be the same for us as well. I always get a kick out of watching new Christians Baby Christians fold themselves into the life of the church. Having been a Christian now for some 20 years, it's, 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 in, it's a joy to see. They look like a baby deer that's just been born. Right? Legs are all wobbly. They're all covered in the world they were just born out of, but yet they're clearly a deer, just young and immature. They aren't able to discern all the dangers and pitfalls that are in front of them. They're totally dependent on mother's milk. And yet, as sure as a day is long, God causes them to grow up. And the next thing you know, they're this graceful buck or doe. And it's the same for you and for me as Christians. I I love watching that. I love watching that. Why does Paul bring this up here in verse 2? Why does he even say this to introduce this topic? Well, because with this background, 
the Corinthians could not be expected to know and understand everything about the faith they had embraced and more specifically what marks out a truly spiritual man or spiritual woman. And so he lays out this principle for us, this foundational, this, this first thing first principle in verse 3. And that leads us into our third point, And that is the the Christian's true confession. The Christian's true confession. We see the apostles' concern. We see the unbeliever's confusion. In verse 3, we see the true Christian's confession. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So verse 3 begins with a resounding therefore. Paul brings his argument into a preliminary conclusion. The I make known to you in verse 3 ties in with the I do not want you to be unaware of verse 1. They're connected with this little interlude in verse 2. Paul says, therefore, since I don't want you to remain in the dark about the things of the Spirit, and since you're keenly aware of all the blindness of your former lives before Christ, I want to make known to you the following. First, what speech contradicts a true Christian's confession, and what speech confirms a true Christian's confession? And the principle in verse 3 is essentially this. The genuinely spiritual man or woman is known by their utterance. The truly, the genuinely spiritual man or woman is known by their utterance, both the content of it and the attitude that lies behind it. He gives us a a shibboleth. Remember the shibboleth in the Old Testament? It's a word or phrase that distinguishes someone as belonging to a particular class of people or not. They wanted to discern, are you of this tribe or not? And the way they pronounce that word would determine would let them know that they were truly of this tribe or not of that tribe. And that, that term has been carried forward even into the present. We use it even today. In this case, the class of people being sorted out are those who have the Spirit of God and those who don't. Those who've truly experienced a work of grace upon their hearts and those who are only pretending or are self-deceived. And so first, Paul describes what speech characterizes those who only look spiritual but are counterfeit and false. He describes what their speech is like. The beginning of verse 3, he says, No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. What is he talking about? Who's saying this? In, in what context? There's been some conjecture that this wasn't actually what anyone was saying and, and that Paul uses this as a foil to kind of um, offset the second statement, Jesus is Lord. But I don't think there's any reason to, to discount what is being uh, quoted here. I, I think there was exactly what was going on. Most likely, he's reminding them of what they knew well, that in the various cults and the various mystery religions of the first century, divine utterances, which often took the form of ecstatic speech, speech empowered by demons, were that, that was an essential part of religion, religious practice at that time, even though they were giving worship to what we know are mute idols. And as we learned back in chapter 10, an idol is nothing, and anything offered to an idol is nothing. But those who give false worship to mute idols Paul says in chapter 10, are actually giving worship to and communing with demons. 
He says, the thing sacrificed to an idol is anything. Do I say that? No. Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. He says, so don't become partakers, sharers in demons. And when you look at the various practices connected with false worship in the first century Roman world, like the cult of Bacchus or Dionysius or Apollo, you see and learn very quickly that frenzied, kind of uninhibited, out-of-body experiences were sought after and heralded as mark of real spiritual contact. Um, listen to how Chrysostom describes the Pythian priestesses connected to the worship of Apollo and the Delphic oracle in the Greco-Roman world. He, he mentions this in his sermon on this passage. He says, quote, uh, the Pythoness or Pythoness then is said, being a female, to sit at times upon a tripod of Apollo, basically a three-legged stool. And thus the evil spirit ascending from beneath, entering the lower part of her body, fills the woman with madness, and she was with disheveled hair, begins to play the bacchanal and to foam at the mouth, and thus being in a frenzy to utter the words of her madness, end quote. And he goes on to say, I know that you are ashamed and blush when you hear these things, but the, they, they glory both in the disgrace and in the madness which I have described. For this is peculiar to the soothsayer, the, the diviner, the, the person in contact with, with the demonic, to be beside himself, to be under compulsion, to be pushed and dragged and to be hailed as a madman. I mean, this was, this was normal religious practice. Plato wrote in his Apology of Socrates of the manic, ecstatic utterances so common of false worship in the ancient context. He said, they who deliver oracles and the soothsayers, can't even say that, soothsayers, say many and excellent things, but then he adds this, but know nothing of what they utter. They're out of their minds. So when Paul says here in verse 3, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. It's entirely possible, in fact, I believe it's probable, that some excitable, poorly taught Corinthian had actually, in some kind of manic frenzy, blurted this out in the congregation. As some kind of ecstatic utterance, maybe as an example as, as part of some trance, who knows what. And the rest of the church, not knowing any better, may have wondered whether the excitement and the emotion under which that statement was made was evidence of divine inspiration. Because that's all they knew. This is what you do when you worship God or gods. And Paul makes clear that anyone who says something like that is not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Paul shoots down such wrong-headed speculation immediately here in verse 3. He says, The words themselves and the way that they, uh, they are uttered are not from God in any way. They can't be. To say that Jesus is accursed is to claim that Jesus has been rejected by his Father, which is essentially to deny the resurrection and his lordship. I mean, that's what it, to be accursed is to, to be destroyed. That's what the term means. It, it began its meaning to something that was offered up to the gods that would then be sort of uh, consumed. And then it came to have this meaning of total destruction. 
Consequently then, just by implication, anyone who claims that, well, Jesus was just a man, or he was a good teacher, or that he was a prophet, but he isn't the God's eternally begotten Son become flesh, they cannot be speaking by the Spirit of God. They can't. They cannot, if they believe that in their heart of hearts, they cannot be a true Christian, even if they take his name upon their lips, because that's not the way the Holy Spirit leads God's people. It just doesn't happen. So what is the true Christian's confession? What speech characterizes the truly spiritual man, the spiritual woman? What utterance would be, a, would be a clear and irrefutable evidence that you and I or anyone else is truly indwelt and being led by the Holy Spirit? And of course, he gives that to us at the end of verse 3. He says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. A true Christian, on the other hand, bows the knee of their hearts and affirms with their words that Jesus is Lord. And that only happens by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not talking about a bare intellectual assent. He's not talking, anybody can go through the motions and mouth the words, Jesus is Lord. What Paul makes clear is that no one will make that confession where their mind and affection and will are in perfect alignment unless the Holy Spirit has done a work in their heart. When you and I confess Jesus is Lord, we are confessing absolute allegiance to Jesus as God and Savior. It sets us apart from the Jews for whom such a confession was the utmost blasphemy. It sets us apart from every other religious belief system that has other lords and other gods. Thus, Jesus is Lord became the earliest Christian confession and bound up in that confession, that acknowledgement is that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he is the exalted one having a name above every other name. As Philippians 2 tells us. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. Those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Lordship of Christ isn't a natural discovery sorted out by the intellect alone. It is uncovered and it is embraced only where God the Holy Spirit has borne a person's heart anew. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus, right? John 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone born of the spirit. Or 1 Peter 1 verse 3, in that benediction, that blessing Paul says, blessed, I mean, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us. We are not the operative agent there, God is. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How does God save sinners? 
like you and like me? How does God transform a heart that can only utter damnable blasphemies like Jesus is accursed and tune it to sing as its eternal praise, Jesus is Lord? How does he do that? God uses the simple means to accomplish supernatural ends. He uses the foolishness of the message preached. The word of God. If you confess with your mouth, Romans 10 says, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, as Paul says, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses and the consequence of that is resulting in salvation. Forgiveness of sins, eternal salvation isn't earned by good works. It is not earned by religious performance. It is received as a gift of his grace by calling upon him, crying out to him, believing upon his life, his death for sin, our sin for his, in his victorious resurrection. And the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a wonderful promise. Have you done that this morning? Have you done that? Can you say in your heart of hearts, Jesus is Lord? If not, you can do that right where you sit. You don't have to get up. You don't have to come down here in the front. You can do that right where you sit. If you feel the crushing weight of your sin upon your heart, and you long to be set free from its penalty and its unbroken power over your life, look away from yourself and throw yourself on Jesus. Let him take it from you and give you in its place his perfect righteousness like a garment that will clothe you and go with you to the bitter end until you are glorified and made perfect in his presence. I mean, that is the Christian's true confession. Jesus is Lord. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts makes it easy for God's people to make mistakenly think that power encounters and liver shivers and ecstatic utterances are the real evidence of the Spirit's presence. But not for Paul. The ultimate mark of the Spirit's work is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord and the virtues that flow out of that, love and joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit, humility, unity, and all those things that accompany the heart of a true Christian. Whatever takes away from that begins to move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with spiritual, spiritual activity as an end in itself. It's, that's all it is. It's just a fascination with the occult. And when that happens, we know that we are starting to veer off course. That is what Paul puts first before he even gets into the whole thing of spiritual gifts. You have to make that confession because without that confession, there is no spirit within you to gift you to talk about everything else that he's going to talk about here in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And we're going to get into what that means and how that affects uh, our practice and what about those things, those miraculous gifts, those signed gifts and things, and how does that all fit together? We're going to unpack that in the coming weeks. But first things first, Paul says, we must confess with our mouth Jesus 
as Lord. And he must truly be Lord of your life, your Lord and Savior. And I pray that all who are here this morning have made that good confession. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn our hearts to the Lord's table now, we come and acknowledge that indeed you are Lord, Lord of heaven and earth. We thank you that you have broken your body for us, that you poured out your blood unto death to certify and ratify the new covenant blessings that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that your spirit might dwell within us. And as we gather around the Lord's table, we remember that in a special way, and we enjoy the fellowship of your presence spiritually, even in, th- in and through that time. We pray, Lord, that you prepare our hearts to glorify you and to worship you even now through our participation in the Lord's table. We thank you that you have worked in so many hearts, that you have drawn us to yourself, that we, that we could ever make that mild, that confession and r- truly believe it in our hearts is a work of your unimaginable grace. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.